Reducing Crime features conversations with influential thinkers in the police service and leading crime and policing researchers. David Weisberg is one of the most famous criminologists in the world and an expert in the geography of crime, police innovation and experimental criminology. We discuss the evolution of his career, hotspots policing, procedural justice and his advice for new scholars. Hi, I'm Jerry Ratcliffe and this is Reducing Crime. This summer, I was honoured by the Cambridge University Police Executive Programme to be awarded the Sir Robert Peel Medal for Outstanding Leadership in Evidence-Based Policing. Recipients are usually distinguished police officers, but I was the second university professor to receive this distinction. But boy, did I have big shoes to fill, because the first professor to get the award was the inestimable David Weisberg. David is a distinguished professor at George Mason University and the executive director of the Centre for Evidence-Based Crime Policy. He's also the Walter E. Meyer Professor Emeritus of Law and Criminal Justice at the Hebrew University Faculty of Law in Jerusalem. And he's also the Chief Science Advisor to the National Policing Institute. With over 35 edited or authored books and hundreds of peer-reviewed journal articles, to recount his list of awards and other significant achievements would take up the entire podcast. But look, here's a couple of highlights. He's an elected fellow of the American Society of Criminology and of the Academy of Experimental Criminology. He was the chair of the National Academy of Sciences Committee on Proactive Policing, on which I served, and he was awarded the Stockholm Prize in Criminology in 2010. He's also won the Jerry Lee Award for Lifetime Achievement in Experimental Criminology, the Sutherland Award from the American Society of Criminology for Outstanding Contributions to the Discipline of Criminology, and in 2015 was awarded the prestigious Israel Prize. Back in June, we hung out on David's balcony in the heart of Washington, D.C., which enabled us to watch the President's helicopter flyby. We discussed his career, hotspots policing, procedural justice, his advice for new scholars, and you will learn which British criminologist isn't warm and cuddly. And no, it's not me. Oh, and yeah, see if you can spot the Casablanca reference I slip into the episode. Ping me on Twitter if you get it. As we join the conversation, we're talking about the podcast, but soon talk about the aches and strains of life. Do you know how many people are listening? Yeah, by the time this comes out, I'll have had over 200,000 people. Is this okay for your back, by the way? Yeah, it's great. Thanks. But thank you, I appreciate it. Yeah, I shouldn't have fallen off a mountain, right? Look, I have back problems. I didn't fall off the mountain. Like today <laughs> I woke up and I was like, pain, you know? Yeah creeps up on you regardless of whether you throw yourself down and I've been swimming and I've been doing my exercises and I've been you know you and Larry Sherman you're both in stellar shape aren't you look at you in good shape well thank you that's appropriate towards age you know like if I was young no yeah I'm not gonna give that compliment to a 25 year old if you're 25 year old you should be in good shape but this is your retirement year so uh well in Hebrew it's a ke'ilu which means I'm not gonna retire but you're just not gonna pay me anymore no it's an old Israeli joke ke'ilu as if, I guess, in English. So I have retired in Israel, like in Europe, there are actual retirement ages, but it's because I have a pension. It's a really good pension. They don't give it anymore. Right. <laughs> they take it away. So you were legitimately grandfathered into Grand, it. I was the last generation in this, but I actually continue to work part-time really at Hebrew U. Then I'm continuing at Mason. So I always say, Ke'ilu, retiring. There you go. I'm doing the things that I want to do more. I've been very lucky in that regard and that institutions have been supportive of me doing the kinds of things I want to do. 
Because you started off way back in New York, didn't you? Yes. When I was at Yale, I was finishing my PhD and I... What was uh, your PhD in? It was in sociology. And I worked with Al Reese and Stan Wheeler. Now, Al Reese at the time was an incredibly famous person. And it's interesting to me that you don't even know who he is, right? Oh, I know who he is. You Come on. Yeah, is? I'm older than everybody thinks okay. I am. But my students today wouldn't have ever heard of him, really. Famous mentors aren't necessarily good mentors. Was Al Reese a good mentor? Yeah, that's a good question. In some ways, he was really good. In some ways, he was not... He wasn't involved with you in the way that, that I would be involved with my students and giving them advice. Things were a little bit more distant, I think, in that period. However, I had experience once. I was waiting out. Al had like three offices. And he had an office in the Institute for Policy Studies, I think it was called, or Social and Policy Studies. And each place, he had a secretary. I walk in, I'm sitting waiting. There are like two people waiting. And he calls me in. And I say, well, Al, there are two people before me. And I didn't say Al. I said, Mr. Reese. He said, I make a decision people that I'm working more with who I think are you know, worth the investment, etc., which is very complimentary, but I felt kind of bad with, with people outside. So he, he was, on the one hand, a pretty good mentor, but it was a different age. I think there was, it would be less, it was a little bit more distant. Stan was a little bit warmer than Alan, Stan Wheeler. Mm-hmm. Stan was like one of the founders of the Law and Society movement. And I, I worked with Stan because he had a very large project on white-collar crime, and that project led to like seven books, of which I was the first author of one. He was a good guy, Stan. And, you know, when I'm mentoring my own students, they didn't provide great mentoring in terms of professional development. You could get your degree, but you couldn't necessarily understand how the field really worked. Well, PowerPoints were just starting, but no one would... It wouldn't have been a course on PowerPoints. There wouldn't have been a course on publishing. Yeah, but if you've been to the American Society of Criminology, it doesn't look like anyway. It does, of course, it's on PowerPoint. 2023, and I've still seen some god-awful PowerPoints most well, of the time. that's true, but even today, and we have courses of sort of professional development yes. and how to do things, like grants and stuff like that. Yeah. Whereas this, you were just expected to, to learn that. By like osmosis. osmosis yeah. right. That was the thing. So what inspired you to take your first job at Vera? Wouldn't a move into academia be the traditional thing? So my career has not been very traditional. I left Yale at one point to do my PhD in Israel. I had an NIMH fellowship, that helped. I won a memorial fellowship, and we were starving too, so we went to live in Israel where Shelley's family was, and actually her brother had passed away, and she wanted to be with her family. Right. So is my wife, Shelley. We both had made a decision we wanted to live in Israel. So doing a PhD in Israel, even though I could have done my PhD on the White Collar Crime Project, uh, I published a book, Crimes of the Middle Classes. I did that work before I finished my PhD, right? Yeah, because everybody writes books before they finish their PhD, so yeah. I don't know if that's true. Did you write a book before you finished it? No, I'm joking. (laughs) No, the book didn't come out until after my PhD, but the research, look, the White Collar Crime Project was the the largest sort of quantitative investigation of white collar offenders that were conducted up until that point. We had data from the federal government that he wouldn't have gotten, I don't think, Stan, if he wasn't at Yale at the time. There was also, at that time, there was more of a a status differential in the U.S. between places like Yale and other... Do you think it's gone away? I don't think it really matters as much in terms of getting resources and research. I think the federal government these days is interested in spreading around resources. I think there's a little less cachet for research. I think that's a good thing, by the way. Yeah. There's been a democratization. And it broadens the pool of people who can make a contribution to science. And also, also at that time... uh, conflicts of interest were minimum. Do you know what I'm saying? They, in other words, there were lots of conflicts of interest and they didn't matter. And just because you're at fancy university doesn't mean you have a monopoly on good ideas. But there was an atmosphere, Stan used to say, he used to say, I'd rather be at a high status university than in like a cutting edge department, so to speak. But I can also look at it from the perspective of being, as we are, policing scholars, is that policing is 
you know, has for a long time been frowned on as not being real research, being looked down on by sociologists. So you're not going to find a home necessarily easily doing policing scholarship, at least back, back in those days, back in the Ivy League, the Russell Group Universities, because there's that kind of snobbery around, oh, we don't do policing. Well, that's true, but Al Reese was a policing scholar, so obviously that wasn't fully true. Historically, what happened in the U.S. is that you had no criminology programs. No. Right? So criminology naturally fell in sociology pretty much most of the time. There are many scholars today still think that criminology ought to be a you know, part of sociology. But at that time, it didn't exist when I went to grad school. It just started existing in the early 1960s. So Vera became a viable opportunity for you then? I had lived in Israel for a few years and done my PhD research. As trucks go, that is a beast. Big truck. That's serious. But I came back to finish my PhD, but I wasn't making enough progress in my PhD, which was on violence by Jewish settlers in the West Bank. Because of the, the family illness, I needed to get a job, even though I hadn't finished my PhD. So it's a horrible time in one's life because you see it a lot with students. You know, they're, they're not young anymore. They're a few years into their PhD. They're trying to get their life started. They're not on a lot of money. Finances are squeezed. They've still got to finish this PhD. It's an unknown future. It's a horrible time to be. It's not the easiest time yeah, at all. Yeah, but it was made worse in this case because we had, as I said, a family illness we were dealing with. And then Stan Wheeler at the time, he had connections to the Vera Institute. He made a call and I went there for an interview and I loved it. It was so different from academia. Uh, they didn't care as much about the sort of status issues, you know, of having a cocktail when you're graduate students. Let's not diss the whole cocktail after work thing no, too much. No, cocktail may be nice. Draw the line there, sir. I draw the line. It was much more working class, I don't know what to call yeah. it, in a positive way. And so at Vera, they offered me $30,000. And I was so happy that I was going to be able to provide for family and try like, all these issues we got to deal with. And then I found out later I was the lowest paid person at that level. God. I mean, I just said, they said 30000 I said, yes, they were waiting for me to say, well, that's not enough. But anyway, so Vera hired me to do a study of community policing. This is 1985. And I knew about policing because of Al, right? But I wasn't a police scholar per se. And my job at the time was going to be walking the streets with these community police officers. It was more qualitative research. You know, most of my background, I'd done a lot of quantitative work. When I was at Yale, I spent an awful lot of time at the computer center before you had uh, portable ways of doing that. I remember those. And in Israel, I'd done qualitative work and in the settlements. So this community policing program, what they did was they had uh, nine officers, a sergeant and the sergeant's assistants in the 72nd precinct. This is up in New York. This is in Brooklyn. At a time when Brooklyn was really crime-ridden, it was really bad. You'd walk into an, an apartment house and there'd be refrigerators and junk in the hallway. I mean, it was at a level that I don't think probably exists any longer in New York. Cops at the time were not intervening in the streets. Right. Then it was due to corruption issues. In 1985, a cop could not directly respond to a drug incident in the street. So what they would do is they'd go to a phone, they'd call it in as a civilian, like, and then they'd go there. But it means that people would be in front of a cop. They would do you know, lots of things. Yeah. Things were a bit out of control, so this program was supposed to put it in control with the community, you know, with a community perspective. And each of them were given a, an area of maybe 15 or 20 square blocks. It was the bad area for that area, right? Well, 15, 20 square blocks is huge. It is huge. They were called beat areas. Some of them were smaller, but yeah. And I walked the streets with them for a year, four days a week. That's how I became a policing scholar. A tremendous learning experience. Did you like the guys you worked with? Yeah, they were younger. 
They were an interesting group. They had a volunteer. I didn't do enough with this research, but I learned a hell of a lot. You know, it was like a learning experience. Like they had different reasons for wanting to be involved. One woman wanted to be involved because she would have more control over hours. Understandable. One guy had an experience where he'd responded to a call and his father was beating his children and he promised himself he'd go back and he didn't. And then he read about these kids being hanged by the father in the Jesus. newspaper. And he said, when I heard in this program, you could follow up. I was really keen on that. You know, I began my career with cops who were young, really decent, positive, you know, different ethnicities, black, Hispanic, white. Pretty much how most cops are, I think. I gave me this really positive attitude towards the police. Right. And they were really decent people. I saw them in the street caring about people in a real way. They wanted to do good. You know, when I get interviewed now and people talk about the police is brutal or the present view is that if you bring police to a place, that leads to oppression. And I should read you this review I just got of a, an NSF project that got funded. But, but in it were two comments in the review that they wanted me to respond to, which assume the police are bad and brutal, right. as if there was no discussion about that. That's just, we know that's true. Yeah. But anyway, so this was the total opposite, I have to say. And that's been my experience. You know, I, I read Twitter, the hellhole site. You know, I read some of that stuff or I read some of these yeah, newspaper editorials from people with a different perspective, often who don't live in Philadelphia, for example. And I'm thinking, this is not the police officers that I actually know and interact with. And there are police officers that are like some of these things. Sure. But this experience was just uh, heartwarming. But one of the problems is I only work in police departments that are more innovative. Yes. So I don't know what's going on in police departments that are ba really bad, right? I even have to say, you know, the Stockholm Prize winner this year spoke about police violence. And it was interesting how in South America, where there's a, a very major problem, that she worked with this group of really good people trying to deal with this problem. Anyway, so these guys each had a beat. And I learned a lot about policing, you know, like, like we're walking down the street, a big dog's coming with this guy in a bad street, right? And I wanted to move to the side. And the guy says, no, 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 we don't move to the side because that sets a bad atmosphere in the street, you know, like. But the most important thing I learned in terms of my later career, with each of these guys and women, they would spend all their time on one street or two streets. There's how hot spots of crime came. Right. Right? I was walking the streets with these guys. I'm expecting to like go everywhere. You know, we go everywhere because we're meeting people. It's community policing. But when it came to crime control and stuff like that, there was one block that had this, you know, drug market, another block near the school where kids were making trouble. There was this other block. It was single blocks. In other words, these neighborhoods that were defined by Vera as bad neighborhoods were not bad. No. Not from a crime perspective. I it's mean, bad, It's bad corners with lots of decent people living on blocks in between. Or on the next block or two blocks. I mean, in this case, there were a lot of streets. I mean, this is where the street segment idea came from. It was clear to me the street segment played a major role mm -hmm. here. The street segment, sometimes the intersection attached to that street segment, but the street segments here, there was a lot of activity coming out of the apartment houses. Another thing I learned here that was interesting, I also got the sense from the police that there's a difference in people who break the law and bad people. And there are some bad people out there. Like one time, there was a block, lots of drug dealing. They did a sting, took like 10 guys in. And they say, oh man, it's 11 o'clock. These guys aren't going to get food. They say, let's go to McDonald's. And they bought the McDonald's. Now, I thought that was really interesting because they didn't think of these guys really as bad guys. No. They thought of them as problems they wanted to solve. But they said, no, we don't want these guys like starving all night. Let's, let's go get some food for them. That's different than another block. They lived like the biggest drug dealer. You know, this is a guy, it's like you wonder why he's living in this street. He's obviously making a fortune. 
And he used teenage girls to carry the drugs. And it's coming back again in the U.S. Until age like 16, there's basically nothing you can do. Yeah. And it's a big thing in the UK with a thing called county lines where the drug dealers are using kids to move drugs around the country and in and out of the cities. This was like a machine, yeah. right? Organized. Exactly. So they get exactly these the girls same. at age 13, 14, they start giving them money, they carry the drugs, they get caught, basically nothing would happen. Sure. They turn 16, they turn them into prostitutes. I mean, it was really ugly. This is like the kind of thing you see in the movies, right? And they hated this guy. Like they hated him. This was a bad guy. Yeah. Like, they would do anything to get him. We walked down the street and he like did like, I don't know what, threw a cigarette down. They'd turn around, handcuff him. And they also hated him because child abuse was a big issue among these officers, I think. It was a, a big problem in this, in this area. Something and they cared about. They really cared about. I could see it really stuck to them. Like this story of this guy who, who killed his children. So this drug dealer, one of the kids had this big scar on his face. And they said that, it came, that the guy put his, the kid face against a, a burner on the stove like that for them that was like that was pretty big hot spots you think has been the thing that's had the most influence in your career i mean i've done lots of things but this hot spot idea see i don't think it would have had that kind of impact for you that it had for me look i came from sociology frank cullen said it to me he said david before i read your work i thought of delinquency areas in other words there's certain areas that are delinquency areas you know it's not a street it's this whole area of town. That idea of a whole area of town was very pervasive in the, wor the way you learned about crime and sociology. Well, it's because it feeds into sociological's perspective that it's about character and upbringing, poverty and unemployment and education and demographics and all those broad things. It's not situational at all. I actually think that those things do, those sociological ideas do play into the micro. But they interact with the situation. situation. But it's not that they didn't understand their situational characteristics, we should know. I mean, take a look at Sutherland's original textbook. He says that criminals are more likely to steal from a fruit stand when there's no one there. I mean, he gets the idea that, that situational components are important, but he says that given the motivations of people to commit crime, I grew out of an intellectual tradition that cared about those social issues at a community level. So that's where I grew up. And then I walk the street of cops and I see, wait a minute, this neighborhood, like there's not crime in most of these blocks. Yep. Right? And then it's on this one block. And that intrigued me. And I called it small worlds of crime. Given my interest in methods and statistics, I was particularly interested in the way in which that made it difficult to observe crime prevention effects. In other words, if you measure crime prevention effects at the neighborhood level, the individual street will get, you know, wiped out. It'll by be lost. The, you know, yeah. It'll get lost in that, you know, a needle in the haystack. This experience with Vera was making me criminology, criminal justice oriented. So I went to an interview at Rutgers and then was hired at Rutgers. But it's, it's the... President flying President going this way. Yeah. It's a presidential flight. Or, or, or the vice president. They yeah. run along the river. But anyway, the important thing about coming to Rutgers was uh, something like two years after I came as an assistant professor, uh, Ron Clark comes to be the dean at Rutgers. And Ron, of course, being very situationally focused and occasionally scathing of criminology generally. Yes, he's not a great fan of traditional criminology. And I've had him as a guest on the podcast. You had him? He's, he's understandably has criticism for traditional criminology, but if we don't speak to that world, then what we do doesn't get noticed, which yeah. has been an issue for me. I mean, I always saw myself early on, I think Ron saw me this way, as a person to become a communicator of some of these right. ideas to, to criminology. those worlds, yeah. But Ron also, like, obviously fixed on me like Al Reese had. And he said, David, 
we're going to meet every Tuesday and have tea. So every Tuesday we'd sit and we'd talk. This went on for years, really. That does sound great. And we developed some work out of those talks, like diffusion of crime control benefits came out of that. He's good about interacting and not just telling you about things. He was very British, you know, not warm and cuddly, like, per se. What are you saying here? (laughs) Yeah, not warm and cuddly, per se. Some British are warm and cuddly, but he wasn't. It's like, all of a sudden, I began to make sense of what I'd learned two years earlier. Sometimes you need somebody just to help coalesce those ideas into something concrete for you. Well, traditional criminology did not have a way for me to interpret that that situation. And without a theory, you're kind of stuck. You need some way of organizing ideas. There's a lot of nonsense theory out there, so it's finding the right theories that are actually useful. Yes, I think it was Temi Moffat who said that criminologists have more theory than they do facts, you know? (laughs) But the traditional theories in any event didn't do much for me, and I also found them burdensome to some degree. But Ron provided a framework for me in two ways. Number one, his attack on traditional criminology detached me a bit from that set of ideas. Ron was way out of the box for me. And I found that really interesting. I like out-of-the-box ideas. And refreshing. And refreshing. And he was very excited about those ideas. You know, he had a passion for them within the, the British way of having passion. You know, like... We can I, sometimes raise our heart. No, he had a passion for it. And he introduced me to Felsen's work, right? Uh, to Conan Felsen and to Branningham and others. So Ron was really important. And something else happened there that sort of coalesces, I mean, by chance occurrence. Like, I think I would have been a talented guy otherwise. But some of the major contributions I've made come from this set of circumstances. I went to Vera. That was sort of accidental. I didn't mean to go there. Yep. And then the year Ron Clark came, we had a chaired visiting professorship open. And so I was on a committee with two other people that were among the older faculty. So I started interviewing people. I spoke to but Larry Sherman. I didn't know Larry. And Larry and I start talking. And he starts telling me about his work in Minneapolis where he found that a, re- a relatively small proportion of addresses produced a large proportion of calls to the police. And I said, you know, wow, that's like so similar to what I did at the Vera Institute. And, the, and we spent hours on the phone, I remember. And Larry was a great mentor in that regard, I have to say. He was great to work. Larry's a great grant writer. I mean, wrote, there isn't a lot he can't do. It's, he's Larry's all, he's all borderline annoying in that way. He, Larry is <laughs> very talented, but he's, a great, he's really a great grant writer. Yes. Because we both felt at the time that the problem in criminology and deterrence was not enough focus. And that if they got focused on these hotspots, you would be able to observe an effect. And so that's where we went. And of course, hotspots policing has now become one of the areas of criminology that's the strongest body of evidence. And Larry and I were convinced at the time that this was going to be important. Like we really felt like young Turks. Like today people think I'm like conventional, you know, right? You win all these awards, etc. But we felt really that we were challenging the boundaries. And Ron helped a lot with that, by the way, because he was totally for us challenging the boundaries, I'll tell you that. And this is your work in Minneapolis. The Minneapolis Hotspots Experiment comes out of this collaboration, which comes out of Ron saying, you choose the guy, <laughs> which comes out of Larry applying for the job. What do people most frequently get wrong about hotspots policing? What the media gets wrong is they think hotspots policing is a particular policing strategy. After uh, Nichols was uh, killed by a crime suppression team in Memphis, which seemed to be working in specific areas. I got a lot of calls, obviously, in the media. What struck me was they kept thinking that hotspots was about a particular strategy. Hotspots policing is not about a particular strategy. It's about a particular insight. Most crime occurs in a relatively small proportion of the streets or intersections in the city. 
And the insight is that therefore, if you wanna get a bang for your buck, you can focus on those places, you can be more efficient, right? But they seem to think it's about beating people's heads in, or uh, in other words, it's about heavy-handed policing. Yeah, it says nothing about what strategies you do when you're in the hotspot. The one strategy it talks about is increasing focus. In, in other words, increasing police presence. So if you, you want to say, does hotspot policing increase police presence on certain streets, it does, and that's, that's right. Yeah. But what they do in those streets is something different. And this is missed by the media. Hotspots policing is a, is a made equivalent stop, question, frisk. I could read you this review I got through this grant proposal I sent. And, you know, it's, it's just this assumption that hotspot policing about beating up, beating people's heads in, about oppressing minorities. That's all about what the police are doing there, if you seem to me. The, the one caveat I'd say is hotspots policing is about focusing in on particular streets. But even there, and this uh, law scholars, for example, get wrong all the time. They think the police sort of choose the places they go to for hotspots policing. For the most part, the data that generates what's a hotspot comes from comes from the community. citizens. Yeah, comes from the right? community. Yeah. So, so, I, so I'm actually working on an article about this now because in the law area, this is like way off. I'm shocked to hear that lawyers who spend no time on the streets and have no experience with data or analysis get this wrong. Just, I'm well, shocked to find gambling going on this, in this place. This is just something that's repeated over and over again as if it were truth. Right. So I shouldn't have too much faith in uh, articles in law journals that are peer-reviewed by second-year law students? Well, I think this is coming true of generally in academia acceptable now to just assume the police are brutal, that hotspots policing causes racial animus and all these other sorts of things. So the criminology field gets this wrong too? Well, a lot of criminologists are coming out of fields where this is becoming more prominent. I think that at the moment, just read some of these news articles that quote criminologists, and it's just an assumption. I just did a survey with, a, with the National Policing Institute in Phoenix, and we asked people at hotspots whether they want more le police, less police, or same level, and they want more I know more what you're going to They absolutely want they more, want more police. police. Yeah. And I think it's true that people who live in these streets that are very problematic want more police. Now, they want the police to treat them with dignity and respect, sure. and that's not too much to ask. But they certainly want much more police. But there is this sense out there in academia and to some degree in the media that, you know, more police is bad. You know, and let's defund the police. Most of the evidence is in the directions. Research recently published in the PNAS, which was a randomized trial in three cities in which we provided the equal number of police in the treatment and control group. I guess you call this a crime suppression team. The, the difference in the treatment and control in this case was that the treatment group received five days of training in procedural justice, treating people with respect and these sorts of issues. And that research has convinced me that it is true that if you're going to send cop to deal with, you know, hot spots of crime and units, that it's a good idea to train them because they're going to have a lot of interaction with people. Right. The results of that study suggest that's right. I've been to a number of police academies and the training that people get at police academies varies greatly. But at least some of the ones, I can't speak for all of them, but some of the ones I've been to are still locked into this old school mentality. Cops that were last on the street 20 years ago and it was warrior mode. You know, you've got to take charge. You've got to own the streets and all this kind of stuff. And it sets up a very confrontational attitude. But what you're saying is the procedural justice can add a more personalized component to, to soften that edge while still being able to do hotspots policing? Look, I think that today's police are trained a bit differently to some degree. These kind of programs like procedural justice being more respectful to citizens are emphasized. What, what I like about this study was I think there was a growing perception in the U.S. that you either had to choose police reform 
In other words, getting police to behave better with more respect for citizens, etc. Or you had to choose crime control. And those two things worked in opposition to each other. Yeah. But that's not what we found. We found that you got crime control, you got improved citizen evaluations of the police, you got more respectful behavior all at the same time. The media get the tactics wrong about hotspots policing. But what I found is that many police officers fail to understand that displacement isn't a given. They assume that displacement is a like a going just going to happen. You focus in one area, we're going to move all the crime to somewhere else. But you haven't found that's the case either. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because cops go both ways. On the one hand, it's not surprising to them that a specific street has problems. Like when you tell criminologists about this and the concentration of crime, they would say, you know, like, yeah, well, you know, there are instant communities. The cops understand the micro-geographic nature of policing because they're going there all the time. You know, I keep coming back to that same block, right? But at the same time, both for academics and for the police, it's hard for people to lose that theory of crime. And you have to be careful because on the one hand, police have experience with displacement. They purposely cause. You know, there's a prostitution site in a certain block. The cops say, look, we're going to rash you all the time here. Go two blocks over, we'll leave you alone. And golly gee, they yeah. often go two blocks over, even though it's disadvantageous for them in terms of clients, etc. So they have some experience with that. And it's also the case, you can't turn around and say displacement never exists. But the assumption that it's an inevitable yep. uh, result of uh, prevention and policing is just wrong. It's all over the world. I was at a meeting in Israel with a deputy commissioner and some academics and someone said well don't you know that Weisberg's found that crime doesn't just move around the corner he said well my stomach tells me that crime displaces ah, so that, that, the old gut it, instinct that my instinct is from my experience in the street that happens the, the problem is that it can happen I, I'm, it certainly can but the research we've done starting with the, the Jersey City displacement diffusion project I think is it pretty much shown that it's displacement is not inevitable and more likely in displacement, it was Ron Clark and I coined the term diffusion of crime control benefits. Look, after we did the Minneapolis hotspots experiment, what, what loomed large was the issue of, well, didn't crime just move around the corner? You know, I was in a police car visiting Minneapolis, called me, the gets on the radio and says, hey guys, I got that crazy academic that's making us go to these places. Doesn't he know that crime just moves around the corner? And you were actually in the car at the time. Well, they actually said more. They said, I'm going to bring him down to so-and-so's gym. We could all talk to him there. Now, they were joking with me. But yeah, they, they thought it was ridiculous at the time. So it's, it's disappointing if, if that kind of attitude is still there. But in Minneapolis, I tried to measure a displacement. Often these places were near places with a lot of crime, so needle in the haystack problems in terms of measurement. So I developed the Jersey City a displacement diffusion project, which was not a randomized trial, but a controlled experiment where we had a target area and we had two displacement areas around. And in that study, using measurement, uh, observational measurement for drug crime and uh, prostitution, uh, we found that the crime didn't just move around the corner. Indeed, when you crack down on the target sites, that the areas around got better as well. Uh, that's when the intervention itself was tightly focused on the target sites. Now, uh, that was, I think, a pretty important study that gave people some sense, not only empirically, that displacement was not inevitable, but it was also important because it provided a logic model for why that was the case. And you and Ron coined the term. Ron and I coined the term diffusion of crime control benefits. So those meetings, those teams with Ron way back when have, have been around in my go. head for years and years and years. But in this case, the question becomes why. Yeah, we were doing a bunch of research that was giving us ideas about that. One was that 
quite often these hotspots were in places that offered situational opportunities, as Ron would say, uh, that made them good places to carry out certain types of crimes. Yeah. A good example is juvenile crime. We found juvenile crime highly concentrated in Seattle, but at the same time, the question becomes, around the corner you didn't have it because the juvenile crime was concentrated in obvious places where juveniles congregated, like stores that juveniles would use, malls. And in Minneapolis, around those malls would be like single-family homes. They're not going there. Right. So one reason for a lack of displacement was the same opportunities did not exist around the corner. Yep. A second reason, however, and this was why that study was important, we did qualitative work as well. I think qualitative work is a great way to develop a sense of the mechanisms going on. Uh, we interviewed offenders, we had a qualitative researcher at the prostitution side doing ethnographic research, and what it turned out was, for them, moving what you're doing to another place can be dangerous, it can be uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. One prostitute told us, someone had asked, well, why don't you move to another prostitution site? She said, I don't feel comfortable with those girls. Right. And for me, that was one of the most important ideas, one of the most important theories, if you like. The truth is, just like we all don't go to some club or some bar or some restaurant, we don't feel comfortable. Uh, we get our hair done, we don't like to change it. These people are the same way. They're, they have the same basic set of motivations we all do. I agree with you because the quantitative work is the important stuff in terms of the policy because it tells you whether something works or not. But the qualitative work tells you why it works or it tells you why it doesn't work. Well, again, something is more powerful when it makes sense to people. One of the reasons why the cop think there's displacement, it makes sense to them. Right. If you push down here, the balloon's going to go up there. It's just that model is entrenched in people's heads. So we have to explain to them that other option, which is if you push down here, it won't go over there because over there is not like here. But also because those people who are here for human reasons, they don't feel comfortable going they don't over get, there. They don't they're want to go over there. They might be afraid. They might feel uncomfortable, right? I was looking through your book you sent me on evidence-based policing. So you try to do that throughout the book to give them a sense of, of why this is occurring, of why this logic might make sense. I didn't know you had such masochistic tendencies. No, no, actually, I think it's, it's written in a way that will... Uh, I can see a lot of courses with police and others taking advantage of the book. It's a good book. Thank you. Looking back now, what advice would you give young scholars coming into the policing field? What I would say to young, for younger people is that they shouldn't be overly affected by what's immediately important. And by that I mean that, you know, the atmosphere is changing all the time. And if you run after that atmosphere, you're not going to make really important contributions. You may be on the front page of the newspaper, you may be writing op-ed, but, but you're not going to make the kind of contributions that last. Because those things are things that are developed over time, thinking it through. They're not directly responsive. What, what, what do you mean by the stuff that's right now? Well, for example, right now, uh, I'd say that uh, more people are concerned with how to control the police than how the police control crime. I think that you can get drawn away by the immediate concerns. This week, it's, you know, we're defund the police. Now I'm reading all over the place. We need more police, you know, right. like the crime's going up. I mean, that type of instability is not good for science. For science, you have to have some idea of direction. Yeah, beware of being dragged along in the... And it's also what's simple, you know, it's like... Uh, and maybe this is not good advice, but in my career I've sort of gone after what, what I was interested in next. And not just benefiting from what I've already done. So, you know, I could have done a lot more, I, I suspect, traditional hotspot studies than I did. But I kept asking myself, what is the question you want to ask? And sometimes those questions are not of interest at that moment. Right. When Larry and I did the original hotspot study, I don't think it got very much play for a few years. As scientists, we're producing the basic science for it, I think, as well as the applied science. 
That's a really good answer. Yeah. You think so? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not. Now all these people will be uh, not succeeding. So tell me what you think. Wh what is your view? I think it's hard for young scholars because, you know, what were the influences when we were starting our scholarship? We didn't have Twitter. We didn't have any of that kind of stuff. So if you want to know what people are doing, you went to a conference once a year. If you wanted to see what people are doing or what they were interested in. So in the intervening period, you just basically looked at what journal articles they published in the meantime, and that often had a time delay. So I think by the nature of the business, you could think about more long-term problems. And now I worry about young skulls getting sucked into, well, this is going on, this is going on, let's do a hit and run paper that and hit and run paper that. And it's, it's you know, what if that person gets there first? Because it's so quick and rapid. And I wonder if we're producing more and more scholars who don't have a specific speciality, but their area of research is publishing a lot. I think a depressing part of this is, I would have thought that the funding for policing research would have expanded a lot more than it has. Mm, yeah. In other words, I think that you know, this idea of a college of policing or a national institute of policing is a really important idea. Absolutely. And, 100%. And because the funding mechanisms are not there, and also the way they're set up. I mean, I think that academics should be looking at lots of questions about policing that, that may not fit in the traditional academic uh, framework, but are important, like in medicine, but important for the advancement of the work. And right now, you know, there should be scores of studies, randomized trials looking at the problem of procedural justice. These are the kind of specific questions yes. the police need to, to know about. Generalized, right? we know about this, but now it's always the case when you go to a policing conference, if you have something successful, the first questions I'm always asked are, how do I do it? What did you do? And they, they don't want to spend weeks on training if they can get away with doing it for five days or three and, days. And I think this is second what I call second generation studies. We know that hotspots can work. Yes. Now, what can we do at specific types of hotspots? But I don't understand why there has not been greater support for research on training, on problems in policing, on strategies and all this sort of uh, stuff. Well, it seems that there's almost more money from non-profits and non-government money. And that's very much geared at the, these days towards how can we get policing out of policing. Or uh, interested in inequality and these sorts of questions, which are really important. I don't want to give the impression that I don't think they are. Make sure you include that. But there's the other issues that are also important. Yes. Very important for the everyday practices. Look, I'll tell you something surpri uh, surprising thing in this part of my career. So I did this large NIH basic research study, an R01 study, on hotspots of crime. It's convinced me that of the importance of, of issues like collective efficacy at the microgeographic level. Right. So when this defund the police movement came up, and even before, I started thinking, well, the, na the natural next result is to build these social conditions like collective efficacy. Yes. Right. That would be uh, social workers and others where they would work to increase collective efficacy. I thought people would like this, you know, like all this defund the police. And I got very little traction, and I'm not, not an unknown guy. I can Why do you think that environment. was? I think people like to talk about other options besides the police, but when it comes down to it, why do you think this hasn't gained traction? It's not anti-police, but it's an alternative to investing in the police. I think there's a piece of it where, as crime went up, post-George Floyd, post-COVID, there was a lot of talk in the sort of intellectual elite sphere but as you found in your hotspots area, people still want the police to turn up. 
And the reality is that cities, you know, I think they're looking at it going, well, that's great, but it's going to cost us a bucket load right, more money. Right. And the brutal reality is the reason the police got given all these jobs in the first place is because you could just add more and more to their workload without actually drastically increasing the amount of money you give to them. Whereas to set up a separate unit, that's great. But when that unit's not doing that thing, they're not doing anything else. Whereas if you give the job to the cops, when they're not doing a mental health call, they're doing crime prevention or they're dealing with a dog or they're dealing with whatever else it is. And that's the problem is cities want to talk about this stuff, but they don't want to pay for it. So a community activist in New York told me the reason why they go to the police also is because they're good at doing what they do. I don't know if this is true everywhere or whatever, but they have a sense it's going to get done well, whereas other city agencies less confident, which is interesting, right, for well, a community activist to say this. I've had deputy commissioners in Philadelphia just turn around and say, well, we had this plan and it was us and probation and parole and these three or four other city agencies and what we did our bit and we spent all of our own time money and we turned up and what did everybody else do? They didn't show up. I'm sorry, probation and parole, I'm picking on you because I mentioned you, but there were other agencies. But it's that bottom line of the questions about accountability in policing, but there's certainly lack of accountability in other city agencies. Wilson Kelling raised this. I've criticized some other aspects of broken windows, but in one way I think they were right, which is the police can't do all the work. No. The community has to be engaged in doing some of this work. And then the police can sort of work on the, let's call it the margins of what's going on. I, but I, I run into cops frustrated about doing problems with policing projects where it's, let's do something about the street lighting, do something about this, that and the other. And they just run into these barriers that other city agencies that just don't have the buy-in, they don't have the accountability and they just turn around and say no. And then they say, what are you going to do? My view at this point is the idea that hot spots of crime are sort of hopeless and that the police have to take control and the city has to take control. There are people who live in these streets and they can be partners in this effort, right? The original community policing idea. But that means you have to work on increasing that collective FC with, on those streets. You have to work on increasing their strength as partners. And I think that would help the whole crime equ uh, control equation and would also take burdens off the police. Yep. So it doesn't sound like you're retiring really anytime soon. Well, maybe uh, anytime soon, I'm not sure. <laughs> Look, at this point, there are two things that determine retirement in that regard. One is to what extent you enjoy what you're doing. Yep. So the things I'm doing, I like. The work at the university I'm doing, I like. There's always things you don't like, but overall, I'm happy doing it. And I've been very lucky in that these institutions have been very supportive of me. The other thing, of course, it, as you get older is health. As long as you're healthy, that's okay. And yep. then if you're not healthy, then life changes. Well, thanks so much for uh, spending a bit of time with me. It's nice well, to see you. Thanks for coming over and spending time with me and talking. It's been interesting. My recent book that David kindly mentioned at the end there is called Evidence-Based Policing the Basics and is published by Routledge. Details of the book and instructor support materials, including videos and PowerPoints, can be found at evidencebasedpolicing.net. And evidence-based policing there is all one word. That was episode 66 of Reducing Crime, recorded in Washington, D.C. in June of 2023. New episodes are announced on Twitter, Blue Sky, Threads, or LinkedIn, but if you subscribe, they'll be delivered straight to your preferred device without you doing a thing. And the Reducing Crime website has transcripts of every episode. If you teach, message me for multiple choice questions. Be safe, and best of luck. <laughs>